we ended up last time uh, in in Genesis chapter 19, and we were talking about the uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and Abraham's. Uh, well, the angels talking to Abraham. I can't remember actually how how far we got into that. Uh, it's been a while, but I'm going to review some of that again. Maybe say a little bit more about that, and then maybe move on a little, a little bit, um, and uh, maybe get into chapter 20 or 21. We'll see how far we get. I'm moving a little faster through Genesis now because I feel like we've got through the the beginning. The beginning chapters are just so rich. I feel like almost every sentence, every verse needs some kind of deserves some kind of a comment. And I'm sure this part does too. I just don't maybe maybe don't see as much or it's not as clear to me. But I'll be moving a little bit faster for a little bit here until I get to some other verses uh, through through Genesis. There's going to be times where I think I've said this before, but where I go. Um, more more rapidly through the Old Testament, times where I take a lot of time, and it's all depending on what I'm able to see in that place. I don't want to say a lot about something I haven't seen clearly, and I don't want to say little about something that really the Lord's really touched my heart about. So, uh, anyway, so in chapter in chapter 19, um, there's that that story in chapter maybe it's in chapter 18 where where God visits Abraham. And Abraham has this long conversation with God uh, about how well, God tells him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham has this long conversation. You guys are probably very familiar with the story where he says, well, what if there's 50 righteous in the city? And, and, Abraham, and God says, well, I, won't, I won't destroy it for 50. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? He gets all the way down to 10. And I think that's where he stops, if I'm not mistaken. And God says, uh, no, I, w- I won't dis- destroy it even for 10. And, <clears throat> and, but the thing that I think we often miss there is, I mean, God is certainly assuring Abraham that he's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. But that's not because God has any plans to spare Sodom and Gomorrah but rather because his plan always involves never sparing the things that fall short, never letting the guilty go. Remember when God speaks to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, 34, he he takes him up on the mountain and he says, I'm going to declare my name to you. And and he goes by and, and he says, I'm going to let my glory pass before you, before him. And as, as we've talked about, I think, maybe in this class, maybe not, but glory is the self-revelation of God. Glory is God making himself known in the Old Covenant in types and shadows and pictures and, and natural representations of him. In the New Covenant in spirit and truth in his Son, the true revelation and, and knowing of God in Christ. And... Uh, and so, so Moses experiences this type and shadow glory of God. He sees the back parts, not the face, as we we see the face, uh, as Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter four. Moses saw the back parts, but one of the things that God God passes before Moses, and I love how he 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 declares what I would call the two sides of the cross. God, when God appears, when God reveals Himself, there's always these two things that your heart is amazingly aware of suddenly. 
Um, I think I talked about this recently. Maybe it was Friday night. Maybe it was this morning. I can't remember. But um, maybe it was last night. Anyway, at some point, I, I recently, in the last few days, I talked about how um, when the light, like if you're in a room and the the light turns on, there's automatically two things that that happen, whether we're in touch with those two things or not. There is... Uh, there's an immediate awareness of what is present. Like if you walk into a completely dark room that's got a table and a chair and a bookshelf and a couch or whatever, you walk in there, turning on the light is not going to change one thing in terms of what's in that room or what's real there. But it's going to ha- it's going to do two things in you. Two things that are really come from one experience. You turn on the light and it's both going to show you what is and it's going to remove from you what isn't. It's going to reveal what is present and it's going to kill every single imagination that you've had about what, what you thought was there. That's what, that's what light, that's what truth, that's what glory, that's what revelation always does to the human soul. That, it works like that in the natural realm because that's the picture of a spiritual reality. When God makes himself known, when God makes his glory pass before us, there's always two, these two things, which are to me the two sides of the cross. They're the same cross, but two sides of the same cross. Something is revealed and shown to be real, and in the light of that something, something is something else is cut away, rejected, put away. And so when God, I say all that just because, because, um, because when God passes before Moses, and is it Exodus 33 or 34, one of those two chapters... He declares, I am the Lord God, and he describes himself righteous and justice and loving, showing compassion and love to generation after generation. But but then he stops and says, but I will by no means leave the wicked unpunished. And and, uh, and, and he kind of describes another but like a, a, sh- a short description on both sides of the cross of 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 what his presence means, of what his glory means, what what it means to face God. And uh, or to see God, and I say that I would kind of try to tie that into this story because God never has an intention, and, and you can see this in so many different types and shadows. He doesn't spare flesh. Your salvation is not God sparing your. F- Flesh, or God sparing the old man, or God allowing Adam to live. That's not, or in, in our case, allowing Sodom and Gomorrah to continue for the sake of ten righteous. That's not the way God works. The way God works is to pull you, to destroy and separate from himself and and cut away and turn his back on and never have to deal with or see again everything that fell short of his glory and yet to take unto himself everyone who is willing to leave behind the thing that he rejects now that's a really that see that, that may sound like a really simple thing to say but but if i can be just totally frank Nobody really believes that. I mean, almost, you know, what is religion? Religion is 
a man-made construct, a human mental concept in which man tries to, in the flesh, in some way, through some behavior, through some kind of prayer, through some kind of belief system, some kind of book, whatever, services or songs, grab hold of God and bring him into our world. And everything, we've talked about this in a few other stories, I think, already, but it's, I, still, I still think that so much of our hearts rejects this idea. Because all of the types and shadows, is ne- never they never have to do with God coming in, setting up his camp in Sodom and Gomorrah, and staying there, um, living there, and and saving, preserving the things that are abominable in his sight. Rather, he comes with a very specific purpose. Jesus. See, see, there's this thing about the two witnesses. Uh, it's in a lot of stories. Moses and and Aaron, they're two witnesses, and they go they go into Egypt, and and they don't they never have in mind that God's going to save Egypt. What they're basically trying to do is just pull the people out of Egypt in the midst of God's destruction. That's what they do, right? Well, that's what these two angels do. They go into Sodom and Gomorrah. They're two witnesses. They they witness the judgment of God. That's what they're bringing. That's what Moses and Aaron kept bringing, right out of the staff, right out of the cross. Everything, you know, the, the cross was the sign that God gave to Moses. To throw it on the ground, it'll become a serpent that'll eat up all the other serpents, and then I'll bring it back to myself, having swallowed up the curse. You know, that's God... He, and then in every single judgment that came upon Israel, he says, lift up your staff, and this is going to happen. Now lift it up again and strike the sea, and this is going to happen, or strike the, uh, the the Nile River, and then lift it up again, and then frogs are going to come out, and then lift it up, and he just keeps, it all comes out of that cross, right? But the cross is both the destruction of the one and the salvation of the other, because as soon as he goes to the Red Sea, the cross, the staff is what's lifted up, and that's what parts the sea, and then it gets the other side, and the staff is what strikes the the river, I mean the river, the, the rock, and, and, and the water comes out of, of the rock. And it's all out of the cross. You see, it's all, it all flows out of, it all flows out of that one judgment. It's a judgment of the wicked, and it's also the life of the redeemed, right? So, so the two witnesses go into uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're not there to set up camp. Okay, they're not there just to, um, you know, to to look around and figure out how to change the the living conditions of Lot and his two daughters. That's not why they came. Why did they came? Why did they come? They came to witness to the judgment of God in the midst of something that He was not going to spare at all. Now look. Look at the story of, of Rahab and the city of Jericho. What happens there? Two witnesses. They go in, and what are they there to do? The exact same thing. They go in there, and and they're not there to uh, hang out and see how they can maybe fix the, the carnal condition of the city and the land that, you know, God has put under the ban. You know, No, they're there to basically... Declare the judgment of God. And what's, what is Rahab's only way of surviving? She has to paint the blood over her door. In, in her case, it's, she paints the, or she puts the red 
the uh, the red uh, cord over her window, but it's the same thing as painting the blood of the lamb over the door. She agrees with the judgment of God. She says, look, this city is, and, and what does she say? This great statement of faith. She says, I know that this city is being judged by your God, and I'm totally in agreement with that. I, I know that your God is the God of heaven and of earth, and, 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 and everyone here trembles at, at the greatness of your God. And, and, and so when she comes into an, an alignment, an agreement with that, with that judgment, then she, the, the two witnesses, have, have in, in a sense, they pull her out. They don't pull her out right away like they do a lot in... Uh, his 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 wife and his daughters, but but that her only escape is to leave in the midst of a total destruction. Now these two witnesses, whether you're talking about Aaron and Moses in Egypt, or the two angels in Lot, uh, and, I mean the two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, or the two spies that enter into Jericho, or if you go all the way to the New Testament and the the, the two witnesses um, that. Are described there, uh, proclaiming this 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 incredible judgment judgment that's co- coming upon you know the. Well, I don't want to get into that stuff, but it's the same thing. Basically, it's the same story anywhere you find it. So, here here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, for those that just recently joined us, we're we're still talking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and 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 God sends these two witnesses in, and that the intention is never to save Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the intention is to judge, but he sends the witnesses because let everything be established by two or three witnesses. He sends the, the, the witnesses into the city and, and, and he takes, their salvation consists in being removed entirely from something that is a hundred percent under condemnation. It's a picture of a city, a land, a place, a man under condemnation. And yes, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was doing wicked things, and so was uh, Jericho, and so was Egypt. But but really, all of those things are just pictures of a, a man, a realm that's defined by a man that is under the condemnation of of the cross and when judgment comes to it nothing survives the only thing that lives is that which dies in the lamb and comes out of that place rahab died with the blood over her window the cord over red cord over her window israel died with the blood over their door okay uh the point is that there's not there's not actually the salvation of Lot in. Lot doesn't keep living in Sodom and Gomorrah. In order to live, he comes out. Okay. So I say I, I said a minute ago. No, I, I say these things a lot. I know that I do, but but we don't. We don't believe it. We our hearts are still full of thoughts and prayers and desires and lenses through which we read the Bible and listen to sermons. Our hearts are full of ideas through which we are trying to get God to come and bless Sodom and Gomorrah or come and fix the condition of slavery in Egypt or come and preserve Jericho. 
that's what that's that's how we all probably I would imagine I don't know all of you you know super well in terms of your pasts but I would guess that all of us started our relationship with God in that way thinking that we had just got we had just met Jesus and the greatness of our relationship with Jesus was the ability now to bring him where we are and cause him to bless protect give love what we call our lives and the whole point of his coming the whole point of Jesus Christ's coming who also had another witness that witnessed with him who the God was sending another witness that he would testify and the spirit of truth that the whole point was not to not to save the world, but to take us out of it so that we dwell in Christ. Now, I'm all about saving the whales and, um, you know, as far as the planet Earth is concerned, it's a nice place to live. You know, we should take care of it and do nice things. We shouldn't, you know, throw trash out our windows and, and and kill dolphins and you know I'm I I, I I'm I'm, all, I'm not saying we should just trash the planet because it's not Christ. However, God, nevertheless, Christ came to bring us like any of these stories: Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh, the two angels going into Sodom and Gomorrah, the two spies going into. Uh, Jericho, they came to bring out that which would do, that which would come out, and they destroyed everything else. And and if you begin to see this reality in your heart, you begin to relate to the world as the realm of the dead, the realm of sin and death and slavery. It's a place that you're you no longer are really trying to fix it. You're trying to live free from it. You're trying to go out from it and not look back. Because when you look back, you experience the thing that you're beholding. That's exact. That's what this story is about. That's exactly what this story is about. She comes out. This is one of the many don't look back stories that are throughout the Old Testament. You see one with Abraham leaving his country and kindred. You see one here with Lot and his wife. You see one with Israel coming out of Egypt. And, and yet their hearts are always looking back to Egypt. You see Ruth. Who won't? Look, she refuses to look back to her country, kindred and father's house, and house, and she inherits. She's redeemed and then taken into the inheritance of Israel. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, and we'll get to them. We'll go through them all, but but they're all basically the same thing. What God brings you out of, He does not preserve. He destroys it, or, or, or even worse than destroying it, He separates it from Himself. And. Because it's a city, it's a land, it's a covenant, it's a man under condemnation. Okay? And I don't know, I had this cheesy diagram. Maybe I'll put up this diagram. Alright, so here's, I don't know if you can see that or not. It's, uh, it's Sodom and Gomorrah is that, it's, is what's hit it, getting the, uh, mushroom cloud down there on the bottom. What I'm trying to show in this is that God comes down into this realm not to set up camp down below, but to bring 
Uh, and I couldn't find two little stick figures that were facing exactly the right direction. But what, what those little stick figures there are supposed to be um, his wife looking back to the realm that she called home, turning her heart back, and then he, he goes on, you know, Lot goes on and does not look back. That's kind of what I'm picturing. But But the mountain is where God comes from, and the mountain is that to which he tells them to go, to flee to the mountain. And and she becomes this uh, this picture of, um, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned this last time, but her looking back wasn't just a picture of curiosity. Like she heard a noise, she turned around, and, and, and suddenly... You know, she, what was that noise? And then too late, you're a pillar of salt. I don't think that's what we're supposed to see there. I think she turned around. The implication there is that she, she turned back, not just looked back. She turned back. She, she wanted to be back. She, she looked back to where she had a home, a place, a purpose, and something that God was calling dead. Something that God was said, said had no relation to him, had lost the image to which, for which it was created to, to, to express. It, it no longer, it's like when God looked at the earth and saw that it was filled with violence and every thought of, the, of man was only evil all the time. And he said, and he was grieved. And he, why was he grieved? Because it, it didn't even, it wasn't even, it was, it wasn't even a good reflection anymore. I mean, in its best, the natural creation was a mirror, was a reflection, was like the loon, the loon. The Luna is how you say that in Spanish. I it kind of mix the two words. The moon. It's like the moon. Uh, in its best day, the moon is a reflection of the sun. In its worst day, you can't even see it. You know, it reflects nothing. It was it was like that. The natural creation had become had lost the image of the thing it was meant to 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 reflect. It was giving no light, not even the light of a refle- of, a, of a reflection. And God says, "I'm going to destroy the whole thing." You know, it's the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same thing with Jericho. It's the same thing with Egypt. And what he does is he brings the people out from it. Now, he, the key here is that nobody is saved in it. You're only saved from it by exiting out from it. The whole story of your salvation is an exit. Well, it's an entrance into Christ, but that entrance into Christ is an exodus out of a land that God is separating from himself and judging. There's a really interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I may have shared this with some of you recently. I just I just think it's it's really it's actually kind of strange um, because historically it's not really correct. But spiritually it couldn't be written any other way. Uh, I think it's six here. All right. Well, basically, what it says is, it says um, something about how they should they should celebrate this feast at night at the at twilight when they slayed the lamb, at the time when God brought them out of Egypt. Now, if you look back at the story, um, th- that's not they didn't start leaving Egypt till the next morning. But what what happened at twilight? What happened at twilight was they painted their the blood over their doors and went into that. They went into the death of Christ. They went into the cross. And from God's point of, point of view, the way in was a way out. The, the going in to Christ was also the exodus out of Egypt. 
Okay, here it is. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, not 6. Deuteronomy 16, and it's in verse 1, and, and then again in verse 6. More, more clear in verse 6, but he says, Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And then, and then starting in verse 5, You may not sacrifice the Passover with any within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time when you came out of Egypt. So, from that from that perspective, from God's point of view, they were out of Egypt as soon as they were in Christ. And that's why the Red Sea had to open up in front of them. It couldn't stop them. Nothing could keep them there. They had already died in the land. They were already on. The, they were already out. And we don't understand our salvation as an exodus. We don't understand the greatness of all that we look, all that we've left behind. We're born as as newborn babies who have no idea where we are or what's real, and and so there's there's all these don't look back stories. Because the the thing that we're always tempted to do, the thing that just works so naturally in our heart, is to come to a salvation we don't understand and therefore keep our hearts in the absence of light, in the darkness that works in the unrenewed mind, keep our hearts fixed on the thing that God has condemned and left behind. And and to the to the measure that we keep our hearts fixed on that man who is condemned, that world who, that was judged in the cross. Remember John chapter twelve, Jesus says, "This now is the judgment of the world. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself." Um, the 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 temptation, the struggle, is always in the heart. That looks back, back unto, and therefore experiences in themselves, just like Lot's wife. She had a very real experience of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though she had walked out of it. Israel left Egypt behind, and yet they continued in a very real. For them, Pharaoh was dead. The army was drowned, and yet they had a very, very real experience of Egypt and slavery, and hunger and lust for the things of Egypt, and the gods of Egypt, and the food of Egypt. Even though God said to them, in Exodus fourteen, "You will never see this land ever again." God cut it off from them. Their hearts looked back. And so you, you see this also, it comes into the New Testament and these same kind of things. Uh, Jesus says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not, uh, or cannot be my disciple or is not fit for the kingdom of God. I can't remember exactly how he says it. But uh, th- that sounds, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, a simple, quick reading, that sounds like some kind of strict, exacting rule. You know, like, you better not do this. But it's not. It's just simply a matter of fact. If you put your hand to the plow, I mean, just even in the natural realm, if you've got your hand on the plow 
and you're looking off somewhere into the distance, or you got your, you know, your your mind looking up at some bird, and you and you're plowing a field, you you cannot expect to have a harvest. Your 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 plow is going to be going all over the place, cutting up stuff it shouldn't be cutting, and I don't really know how that works except what I've seen on Little House on the Prairie. But um, I think it, I think that's kind of what Jesus was saying there that that. It doesn't. You're not helpful. You're not. You're not fit for being a disciple if you if you put your hand to the plow and look back. Or or Peter. Peter steps out of the boat, and he's as long as he is seeing the life that is in front of him, then everything else is below him. You see, the sea is below him. It's not a threat. It doesn't really touch him. It's it's not something that he's experiencing. Is it still there? Yeah, it's still there. Could he sink into it? Yes, he can sink into it just as soon as he fixes his eyes on it. Just as soon as he turns his heart away from the thing he's been called unto. And that's exactly what he does. Fixing his eyes on the wind and the waves, he begins to sink into what he sees. Why? Because Jesus went away? No, because he took his eyes off of Christ, the author and finisher of faith. And so he sinks in. You see what I'm saying? So uh, there's there's other ones too. What else? There's um, oh, there's Paul. I mean, P- Paul says in, in um, you. I'm sure with these same stories in mind, Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind i lay hold of what is before me you know and that 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 word before me is in my presence it's not like speaking of future it's speaking of what's right before before my face and and the word behind isn't speaking of past time it's speaking of that word in, in greek you can look it up it just means behind the back and so he's forgetting the things that the cross has left behind, and he's he's unlike Sot's, uh, Sot, Lot's wife. He is keeping his heart fixed on the thing that God has brought him into. He is looking not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. He is fixing his heart on things above, not on those things that are on the earth. He is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. These are all his statements. This is how he lived. This is what he knew Christian life to be, the fixing of the eyes of the heart on the one who defines us in himself, who gives us his life, brings us into himself, and says to our hearts, don't look back. Don't look back. So it's not like, again, it's not like a strict rule because you know, people always read these kind of statements and make religion out of them. It's not really a rule. It's not a law. It's just a fact. You're you're not going to really experience where you are if you're looking back to what you were. And and therefore, forgetting what lies behind is an essential reality to possessing what God has brought us into. And the sad fact is, and I know I'm repeating myself, but this is kind of, I don't, I don't know, I, I feel like the Lord brings me back to this place over and over and over again in my own heart. I feel like two weeks don't go by without God bringing me back to this don't look back reality. It's just something that I never, you know, because I've seen a lot of people look back 
and and I've seen a lot of people look back and then become the thing they looked back to. And some of you I know, yeah, some of you online here have seen that too with people, people that really started to see Christ, people that really stepped out of the boat and started walking for a little bit, people that, that really came came out of Egypt and, and, and walked in across the Red Sea, you know, people that start. And I've seen, I've seen people, and, and I'm no better than them, you know, and so the Lord just keeps, I just keeps bringing my heart back. I, I've seen people sink and, 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 and not look back to the Lord and, and keep, and that was the, that was the last I saw of them, you know, and I feel like this is just something that the Lord, the person who has their heart set on the Lord is going to be the person that the Lord puts this in front of their heart over and over and over and over again. Paul came to see that this was the one thing. I don't think he was exaggerating when he said that. He didn't say, this is one of the things I do. He didn't say, this is like in the top ten of my priorities. This is just this is what he said, this one thing I do. It was kind of the same thing that uh, Jesus said to Mary. Mary's staring into the face of Jesus Martha is doing all kinds of things to serve Jesus, but Jesus tells Martha to leave Mary alone because she's chosen the only thing that's necessary. It's the same thing. You know, and Martha could have asked all kinds of practical questions about how this and that and that and whatever else is going to get done. And, and Jesus said, Mary has chosen the, the best thing and it will never be taken from her. Well, Okay, um, we need to let the Lord deal with our hearts about this about this story and this story. Again, we're not trying to decode the Old Testament. We're not trying to have some kind of a neat explanation uh, for all of these Old Testament stories. We're trying to see the thing that the Lord was seeing when he wrote down this story so that our hearts can experience that reality. And I believe what the Lord was seeing when he wrote down this reality, at least a part of it, a sliver of it, whatever sliver I've been able to see, is this incredible salvation that has been placed before us and the fact that so many even, well, so many don't even come out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but, but so many who do come out keep their hearts fixed on things below. And therefore don't, and even Lot in this story, it's a, it, look ahead here. Well, well I was going to say Lot, Lot didn't even want to go to the mountain. I'll get to that in a second, but just look at this, this whole story. It's interesting. First of all, Lot runs around trying to tell, um, people to get out and 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 he says get up get out of this place for the lord will destroy the city but to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking i feel like <laughs> i feel like that's uh that's just such a normal response for people even you know even within the church who haven't really seen the great division of the cross it's like you, you say these kind of things and they're like wait are you joking and and so the Lord had to, or the angels of God had to compel Lot. Lot didn't really, he cared more about, I'm not exactly sure what he was doing, trying to get other people to come with him, or he was, you know, uh, trying to pack his bags. But whatever the case was, the mercy of the Lord was such that he, he almost has to drag 
Lot and his family out of, of death. He, he, he wants, he wants to take us out, but he's not gonna pretend like Sodom's gonna be saved. So, so in, in the, what is it, 19 here, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 16, it says, And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. This is kind of like, this kind of like Pharaoh chasing, uh, chasing Israel out of Egypt. You know, and, and, and it takes one kind of heart. I mean, it's one kind of heart is willing to be chased out of Egypt or dragged out of, out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But, but it takes another kind of heart to want to voluntarily follow the Lord into the promised land. There's a lot of people, because of uncomfortable things in the natural realm, because of hatred of sin, because of even hunger for God, who one way or another, the Lord, they, they, they let the Lord drag them out of Adam. They let the Lord get them saved. They're born again. But there's one kind of, it, it, it takes one kind of heart to, to leave the land of sin and death and slavery. And it takes another kind of heart to go on with the Lord back to where he came from, returning to the diagram, back to the, the, the so-called mountain of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord, I think we may have, again, I, I forget where I said it, but the, the mountain is always this picture of the Lord's habitation. It's uh, it's where the prophets met with God. It's where Moses went up and met with God. It's where God came down in the fiery furnace upon Mount Sinai. It's it's the place that Moses sang about in Exodus 15. You will bring them, O Lord, and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place you have chosen for your dwelling place. The mountain is this thing that's lifted up off the earth, the heavenly Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, um, the mountain of God's inheritance. It's always this picture. Even Jesus, kind of continuing along in those types and shadows, went up to the mountain to pray, or was up on the mountain when he was transfigured. It's this it's this place that's kind of lifted up above the earth where God and man meet together. Well, that mountain ends up being Christ. He's the one who is lifted up off the earth and becomes the dwelling place of God and man in one, in one habitation, in one sanctuary. And so God comes out, goes into the earth, and comes back to the mountain of his inheritance. And so as soon as, as soon as they get out of the city, um, it, it's interesting that he's willing to go out, but he, he's not willing to go very far. He, he doesn't make it, at least not for a while, to the mountain of the Lord. He wants to stop at the first small city that he sees, a city that's name means small. It's almost like he wants to stop at the first small view of safety that he has, the first small perspective, the first small thing that appears that looks like a a, a possible um, uh, place to escape judgment. I feel like that's what we do in so many ways. You know, we come out of Adam and we're just content to stay in the first tiny little perspective of Christ. You know, Jesus saved me from my sins and one day I'm going to go to heaven. We'll just stay, we'll just camp right there. As, and yet there's this mountain, and, and, and let me just read it here, Genesis 19:17. So it came to pass when they were brought, when, when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. 
Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one that my soul shall live? Now, that's... You know, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about how I see this or whatever, but I guess I just feel like as I read, as I read that story, it, it just reminds me so much of, of so many other stories where God is able to work in someone's heart to free them from destruction. Or you could say it this way. We let the Lord take us out of Egypt, but we don't let the Lord take Egypt out of us. We let the Lord drag us out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we don't really have, 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 have the intention of going to a place where Sodom and Gomorrah is the furthest thing from our heart. We don't really want to go dwell in the mountain of God's inheritance where all things are in him, by him, from him, and for him. That's really, it's like the first thing we see. It's so easy to set up camp there, join a church that just talks about that one little view, uh, be part of a ministry that makes us feel like we're doing something good, and just camp there for the rest of our life where there's this mountain that that um, that God came out from and invites us back into into himself. Um, well, I was going to say some things about... Well, I'll just say this real quick, just so I can start in chapter 21 next time. Chapter 20, I'm going to stop basically with, with what I just said. But chapter 20 is just another story of Abraham doing the same thing. Remember I told you it happens three times. It happens twice with Abraham and once with um, Isaac. This whole story about him going down south to Egypt or to the, to the border of Egypt in one case and pretending that his wife is only his sister. He only has a sister relationship, not a wife relationship with her in order to protect his life. And then God intervenes to protect the, in part perhaps to protect the seed of life that, that is in her or that will come out from her dead womb. And in part uh, to give um, to give that back to Abraham in the fulfillment of all those promises to get his heart back into the right land and and I got actually some of you guys sent me some some cool emails about that last time we went through that in Genesis chapter 12 with some different ideas and stuff that was awesome but I'm not going to repeat the things I said there if you haven't heard that you can go back and listen to the teaching that or my attempt to share on that that I did from from chapter um chapter 12 so We'll pick up in chapter 21 next time. That's where God, I, I, I'd start that now, but we really just don't have enough time. That's where God sends away Ishmael and, and Abraham grieves and he tells him to listen to the voice of his, his wife and then, and then begins this whole, the whole sacrifice of Isaac thing and God's recognizing only one son. He doesn't even talk about Ishmael as though he knows he exists. It's really an awesome, awesome picture of the spiritual son versus the natural son. So we'll, we'll pick that up next week.